So we are in Ephesians chapter 5. If you have a Bible, you want to go ahead and turn there. Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to finish out 5 and even go into the first few verses of chapter 6. Before I even read today, though, I want to set the stage a little bit because there's a lot going on in this passage. And I think it needs to be understood in the context of what we've been speaking about over the past few weeks. And if you've not been here, uh, it might be helpful if I give you a little bit of context. So on your handout, we're just going to jump right into the, the uh, things that need filled out on the handout. The first one is the imitating Jesus and walking in love, which are the things that we were talking about last week as we looked at uh, some of the earlier parts of chapter 5 leads to submitting to one another in love. I told you several weeks ago that the Apostle Paul, as he's writing to this uh, group of people who are part of a church that he helped plant, much like we have planted this church here, there was a church in the first century that the Apostle Paul helped plant in the town of Ephesus, and this is a letter written to those people who are part of that church plant. He is going to ask them to do some very difficult things. And so he spends the first three chapters laying the foundation of everything he's going to say in the last three chapters by expounding on the gospel message, reminding us of how much Jesus has done to save us. And then he answers the question, how should we live in light of the gospel message? And so the second half of the book of Ephesians is a bunch of practical stuff. And so all the sermons have been, I think, in a sense, very highly practical. They've been commands to do certain things. And we've talked about several, uh, Paul, Paul has these therefore sections where he says, therefore, live worthy of the calling you've received in Christ. He says, therefore, live differently than the world that does not have Christ and live differently than you did before you had Christ. And then he says, therefore, live as imitators of God. Live like Jesus. Imitate Jesus and walk in love. And one of, the, one of the practical outworkings of that is that if we're going to imitate Jesus and walk in love, we're called to submit to one another. Now, submit is not a word that many of us like to hear. But it's helpful to remember that Jesus himself submitted to God's plan of redemption by being sent into this world as our Savior. We, we, that's what we gather to celebrate at Christmas time that Jesus humbled himself, willingly submitting himself to our need for salvation. He made himself vulnerable. He made himself human. And I don't think we can fully grasp the meaning of what Jesus did, but it's helpful as we think about this idea of submitting to one another that we remember Jesus, our Savior, submitted himself for our sake. And so if you don't have a saving relationship with Jesus, let me warn you that what I'm about to call us to, what the Bible calls us to from Ephesians 5, if you attempt to do this outside of a saving relationship with Jesus, if you attempt to do this as some sort of, if you're just trying to be morally upright, this will be of no value to you. In fact, I don't think it will even make any sense to you. It's only in the context of our relationship with Jesus Christ who submitted himself for our sake that we have the motivation and the proper view of what it means to submit ourselves to one another. And so I invite you, if you haven't joined us in having a saving relationship with Jesus, you can do so today and begin to walk in love imitating Jesus alongside of us. But let's not remove this passage from its context. And you'll see why I'm setting the stage for this when we get to the passage itself. But hang with me for a minute. Don't remove this passage from its context. We're being called to imitate Jesus by walking in love. And this is what walking in love looks like. Furthermore, know that Jesus cares about injustice far more than any of us do. Sometimes we, we make ourselves the judge of Scripture instead of letting Scripture be the judge of us. And that is a horrible mistake to make because there is no one more just than Jesus Christ himself. And because he cares so much about injustice and because he cares so much about protecting the, vul the vulnerable, each of these commands to submit, and we're going to see there are three of them, 
Each of these commands to submit include a protection for the one who is being called to submit. Don't miss any of that or you'll misunderstand this passage, okay? All right, let's look at our passage. Ephesians 5, I'm going to start in verse 21 and I'm going to end in chapter 6, verse 9. It says, submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Because the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, he is the savior of the body. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives are to submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. He did this to present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hates his own flesh, but provides and cares for it, just as Christ does for the church, since we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This mystery is profound, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. To sum up, each one of you is to love his wife as himself, and the wife is to respect her husband. Children, obey your parents and the Lord, because this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may have a long life in the land. Fathers, don't stir up anger in your children, but bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your human masters with fear and trembling, and in the sincerity of your heart as you would Christ. Don't work only while being watched as people pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, do God's will from your heart. Serve with a good attitude as to the Lord and not to people. Knowing that whatever good each one does, slave or free, he will receive this back from the Lord. And masters, treat your slaves the same way without threatening them, because you know that both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. This is our passage today. Would you pray with me? Jesus, as we look at what it means to imitate you and what it means to walk in love by submitting to one another, I pray that you would give us a clear understanding of this passage. God, I pray that you would protect us from the temptation perhaps to abuse or to use what we see here for selfish gain, but rather to imitate Christ in laying down our lives for one another. God, help us to see clearly your truth and how it impacts and applies to our lives here today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as I was looking ahead and aware that, you know, it's Christmas time, everybody wants to hear Christmas messages and and all that, and and I see where we kind of landed calendar-wise, and here I am up here talking about wives submitting to your husbands and slavery and all kinds of stuff that's just a real joy to get to talk to a bunch of people about. I was humbled, first of all, um, because like I said, we, we want to sit, we want to allow the Word of God to judge us, not sit in judgment of the Word of God. But I was, also, I was also excited as I dug into this passage to see just how much Jesus cares about us doing this the right way, which never leads to abuse or harm or, or devastation or any of the things that we fear, but always leads to greater love and a greater attitude of service towards each other. As I, as I dug in and I just saw how much he cares about that, I began to get excited about this passage. So let me, let me give you some things to think about as we look at this together. The next thing you see on your handout is this, that submission in this context is a willful obedience out of, one, a love for Christ, two, an imitation of his life, and three, a love for each other. When we hear the word submission, we may think all sorts of things, but in the context of this passage here, this is what, this is what submission is. It's a willful obedience out of a love for Christ, an imitation of his life, and a love for each other. And those things will never lead you to harm. As long as we have that mindset, and as long as we apply this passage out of those three things, we will do no harm to each other, and we will not be harmed by one another. It's important to understand 
what the Bible has in mind when it speaks of submission. First of all, it's willful. It's not brought about by coercion. It's not brought about by force. It's not brought about by manipulation or intimidation. It's, it's willful obedience out of a love for Christ. This is how we respond to his love. One of the ways that we express our love for him is obeying his command to submit to one another. In imitation of his life, I've said it already a couple of times that Jesus submitted himself for our sake. And so we're imitating him in a love for each other. That when we do this right, it gives us the opportunity to express our love for each other. A love that Christ has placed in our hearts. So there are three relationships in this passage where we are called to submit to one another. The first two are obvious. The third one, you're going to have to hear me out and it's going to take a little bit of work, but I, I don't think it'll be hard to get where I'm going. The first one is marriage. The first relationship wherein Jesus calls us to submit to one another is marriage. We see this in verse 22. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord because the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. He is the Savior of the body. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives are to submit to their husbands in everything. Let me tell you, I, over the past 16 years of ministry, I, I've done probably 60 to 70 weddings. And I don't think I've ever done a wedding where I did not read and, and call the couple to Ephesians 5. But our, it, we need to be aware of how our ears culturally shift in how we hear things. In that short amount of time, 16 years, I would, in the beginning of those 16 years, I would read this passage, and even if there were folks who perhaps struggled with some of the ideas that were being presented, it was understood that culturally this wasn't that big of a stretch as time has gone on, because of some of the things that have been played out in our society and our culture, some things that have led to positive change, I might add, albeit complicated process, our ears begin to hear things like this differently. And we just need to be aware of that when we approach Scripture on any subject. It's not just on this subject, but on any subject. So much so that literally over the past year, at two different weddings... When I have read this passage, it has been assumed that I was joking and there was audible laughter. That never happened to me for 15 years. And I attribute that, I've, I've, I, just, I do the same thing at every wedding, but I attribute that to a, cha a change in our culture and how we hear things and how we begin to perceive what the Bible calls us to. And so I just want us to be aware of that. We just need to be aware that we come to the scripture with a certain lens through which we see things. We have, we have a way that, that things land that is influenced by what's happening culturally uh, around us and to us. And so we need to be very humble as we come to the scripture because the word of God gives life in everything that it says to do. It never, it never doesn't give life. And so when we come to a passage of scripture that we find difficult, we must understand that the problem is with us, not with Scripture. And the more we seek to understand it, the more clear that will become. I think that's the case with this passage. Let me say some things about what it means for wives to submit to their husbands. First of all, it's important to note that men and women are equal in worth and both created in the image of God. This is about position, leadership, and responsibility. It is not about value or worth. If you don't hear anything else I say about these couple of verses, hear that. This is not about value or worth. It is never implied that the wife is less valuable or of less worth than the husband. It's about created order. It's about position. It's about leadership and responsibility within the family unit. Wives, how do you submit to your husbands? Honor them. Honor your husbands and how you how you treat them both publicly and privately. Give him room to lead and support him in that role. If God has called the husband to be the head of the family and to lead his wife and children, then that means that the wife must yield to that in a sense and support him and give him room to do that. 
Some of the most frustrating marriage relationships come when one partner or the other will not step into the role that God has ordained for them and instead wants to have the other partner's role. And this, there is something to be said here about our personal disposition. This may come much easier for some wives than other wives. You may be a strong-willed woman. That is not bad. That is not wrong. That is not to be denied. That is how God made you. But you must also understand that that might lead to some difficulty when it comes to allowing your husband to lead. And if you are a strong-willed woman, you probably married a passive man. It almost always happens, and vice versa. And that can lead to difficulty in applying this passage because you have a, a, you have a woman with a very strong will and a man that's very happy and content to just yield and allow somebody else to lead. But God would not have it remain that way. God wants the passive man to step up and to take responsibility, to take ownership for the health and welfare of his bride and of his family, and to take spiritual leadership in the home. And that might mean that he must go against his disposition. Not to deny his disposition, but go against it at times in order to lead well. And his wife may find it difficult at times to let him. And that can lead to a lot of frustration. I've seen that play out many times. But I want to encourage you in this. I want to encourage you that the Holy Spirit will help you and that God says this is good. Wives, rejoice in his leadership. If God has given you a husband, and it's worth saying at some point in this sermon that not every woman here has a husband, and many of you who don't have husbands may wish that you did. You might want to grab, you may, be, you may desire to grab some of these these wives who take their husbands for granted and let them know that this is a gift that God has given them. So rejoice in his leadership. Rejoice that God has put the burden of leading your family on his shoulders, not on yours. It's a gift. It's a gift. Rest in the gift that God has given you. Now, if that's what it means, and I'm just scratching the surface, I understand, and probably maybe presenting more struggles or problems than I'm offering solutions but I want to understand the protection here I said that in each of these three relationships God offers a protection for the one who is being called to submit and in this one it the protection is actually given more words and more verses than the command to submit that's how strongly Jesus feels about this and how strong how, how strong his concern is that this is not abused because submission should never lead to harm. It should always lead to protection and peace. Okay, so here's the protection. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. I'll give you a second to fill those in before I read the rest of the verses I want to hear. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. This is verse 25, and it goes on in verse 26 to say, To make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. He did this to present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. In the same way. In what way? In the way that Jesus loves the church. How does Jesus love the church? He gave himself for her. He died for her. He left heaven and came to earth. And he went to the cross for her. He laid down his life for her. Verse 28, in the same way, husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hates his own flesh, but provides and cares for it. Just as Christ does for the church, since we are members of his body. Husbands, love your wives the way Jesus loves his church. Take care of her the way Jesus takes care of his body. That's what he calls us to. That's the protection here. That if he's going to call wives to submit to their husbands, the husbands better step up and love their wives as Jesus loves the church. This eliminates any room 
for any selfishness among the husbands in this relationship. I'm not saying we're going to live this out perfectly. I'm saying that this is what Jesus calls us to. That in, when we read this in context, there's no room for abuse of the submission of a wife to her husband. And that any time that, that, that those verses have been used to manipulate or to harm or to bring into unwillful submission a wife by her husband, it has been just that. It has been a misuse and an abuse. Husbands, I don't think... The, let me say it this way. I want to say you should never ask your wife to submit to you. But I, there may be a scenario in which your family has to make a, a big decision and you and your wife just have not come to agreement and somebody has to lead and you may have to step up and say, honey, I just, I really feel like this is where the Lord is leading us and I'm asking you to trust me. I'm not, maybe that would happen. This never happened in, in my marriage. By, I thank God, by, by his grace, Kim and I have generally been on the same page when it's come to making big decisions. But I, I don't think it's appropriate for men to ever point out the wives' responsibility to submit. Not only is it biblically incorrect, but it's terribly unwise as a man to ever attempt to do that. We are to lovingly lead. We are to set an example. We are to, to get out in front of our family and take the hits and to take the responsibility and to to spiritually lead our families. That's a lot to ask. It really is. You know, there's a lot of attention put on what the wives are asked to do here, but let's not miss what the husbands are being asked to do. Love our wives as Christ loved the church. I can't do that on my own. I can't do that in my flesh. In fact, my flesh fights against that. But headship implies responsibility, not privilege. This is the next thing you'll see on the handout. Headship implies responsibility, not privilege. Do you understand the significant difference between those two things? Husbands, you've been called to lead. That means responsibility, not privilege. Jesus, the, the night before he goes to the cross, as he washes the disciples' feet, he sets the example of what this looks like. When he reminds them, he, he says, the Gentile leaders, the, those outside of the Jewish community, they lord it over their subjects. But in the kingdom of God, this is how we lead. It's servant leadership. It's by laying down our lives. If you live this out properly, it'll actually lead you to getting less of what you want for yourself. And that's what you should do. That's what Jesus calls us to. Our marriages are meant to be a reflection of Jesus and his bride, the church. That's the next thing on the handout. Our marriages are meant to be a reflection of Jesus and his bride. How did Jesus love the church? He gave himself for her. How are we to love our wives? We give ourselves for them. Verses 31 through 33 says, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become fl one flesh. This mystery is profound, but I am talking about Christ and the church. To sum up, each one of you is to love his wife as himself, and the wife is to respect her husband. See how much sense that makes in context? When we try to strip away the, the, the negative cultural view of some of the things that scripture has to say. You see what God is calling us to? Now, wives, this does not mean you don't have leadership and responsibility within your home. This does not mean you don't have a voice in any of the decisions. You have a voice in every decision that's made in your home. It's, it's difficult for, I guess, I, you know, I have the context of my own marriage and, and the uniqueness of Kim and I's relationship, um, but I, I just tried to envision as many possible scenarios that might occur in other relationships where this is misunderstood or abused, and, and I just want to address as many of those as I can, um, 
but if we just grasp the broad general principle of, of what the Bible is telling us here, that we are to love our wives as Christ loved the church, that headship implies responsibility and not privilege, and that our marriages are meant to be a reflection of Jesus and his bride, I think we can figure out the practical outworking of that. What that we can begin to apply that and work that into our own marriages. Husbands, don't lord over your wives. Lay your life down for them. Love them as Jesus loves the church. In, in Kim and I's relationship, this, this looks, first of all, I'm humbled to preach this because I, I don't know that I'm doing this any better than anybody else in this room. I don't mean to imply, uh, you know, I want to set an example. I, I don't want to shirk that responsibility, but at the same time, I, I don't pretend to have this all figured out and to be doing this perfectly in, in my own marriage relationship, but, but there have been times where I can see things that might be helpful examples. Early on in, in, um, in my pastoral ministry and early on in Kim and I's marriage, uh, there was an opportunity to uh, move my family to another state to take a ministry position that had a lot of appeal to me. It was, it was an advancement in a direction that I wanted to go. And we went out and we interviewed, and, and quite frankly, I, I loved the opportunity. I was quite excited about it. They offered me the position, and I was prepared to take it. And Kim said, I just don't feel right about it. And that was enough for me. There was no way I was moving my family to another state to do something that I wanted to do if there was any hesitation in my wife whatsoever. And I'm not saying that always has to be the case, but maybe that serves as an example that's helpful in what, what I think this should be look like. I think that was an instance in which I was leading, I was taking responsibility, I was serving in the capacity that, that Jesus called me to, but at the same time, hearing my wife's voice in a way that honored her and expressed love to her. And you know what? I thank God that he spoke to me through her because she was right would not have been the right move for our family. Not long after that, we gave birth to a daughter who had uh, multiple disabilities. Um, I don't know what that would have looked like if we were living several hours away from our family and in and and, and a new church family. It would have been a much more difficult road than it was. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. It's two becoming one. There's a, a given responsibility to the husband within that relationship, but both members are equally important and valued and have a say in all of the things that are happening within the family. Okay, again, maybe that creates more problems than I'm giving you solutions, but we really, I, I don't know where else to go with that other than I wanted to give you the big principles. I wanted to encourage you that this, that this is scripture is for our good and that Jesus cares about our protection. I've known I've known women who have been spiritually abused by this passage and by others. And so it gives me great concern not to answer every possible concern or objection that might come up. Nonetheless, um, we have to trust that the Holy Spirit can do that work. Okay, so the first relationship in the marriage relationship. The second relationship, similar but different. The family relationship. Children, this is verse 1 of chapter 6. Children, obey your parents in the Lord because this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is one of the Ten Commandments, okay? Which is the first commandment with a promise. And that promise is listed out for us here in verse 3. So that it may go well with you and that you may have a long life in the land. What he's saying is, you know this from the Ten Commandments, and it's the first of the Ten Commandments that comes with a promise. That promise is so it may go well with you and that you may have long life in the land. I tend to think that that promise is in regard more to the, the societal success than individual success. I don't know that that's an individual promise that if you honor your father and your mother, you'll have long life, but that the Israelite community, if they... If, they live out their families in the proper way, it will go well with them and they will have long life in the land. I'll leave that for you to decide where you stand on that. Nonetheless, this is an important command. God cares about families. You know, God created the idea of family and that this is part of his plan 
And as we see society try to destroy the family units and try to blur the lines and change and, and, and recreate what, what society should look like, we must remember that God's plan from the beginning was that one man would marry one woman and that they would have children together and pass on the legacy of knowing Christ uh, throughout the generations. That's always been his plan. So children, obey your parents in the Lord. You want me, let's go get our kids, bring them in here, and I'll tell them what the Bible says. Maybe that would be helpful, right? You, you, you shouldn't need an elf on a shelf to, to help your children understand this. It's commanded by the Lord that children obey their parents. This is right. Honor your father and mother. Again, I'm humbled to preach this because I did not always exemplify this very well growing up. Nonetheless, it's what God calls us to. Parents, we have a responsibility to help our children obey. So I'll talk about that in a minute, what that should look like. The protection here, and this is probably most significant for the people, although there are some teenagers in here and some young people in here, and I do want to, I do want to encourage, especially my daughter, I, I just pay special attention to this. I do want to encourage you. God has given you parents for your good to protect you, to lead you. They may not be perfect parents. They probably aren't. But God looks out for you when you obey your parents. He looks out for you when you obey any of his commands. But especially this one is the first commandment to come with a promise. Here's the protection. Fathers, don't stir up anger in your children. Verse 4. Fathers, don't stir up anger in your children, but bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. The command is to obey your parents, and then the protection is directed at fathers. I don't think that lets mothers off the hook necessarily, but Paul hones in on the fathers specifically, and he says, don't stir up your children, don't stir up anger in your children. In other words, dads, don't be a jerk to your kids. Just stop being a jerk to your kids. Dads who, who have not submitted themselves to obeying Christ in this area generally do stir up anger in their children by, by coercion, by threats, and by intimidation. And, and, and the Bible protects against this. Fathers, don't do this. If you rule over them with coercion through fear and intimidation and threats, you and they will both pay for that the rest of of your lives. Dads, you will do irreversible damage to your children if that's how you lead them. They will spend the rest of their lives trying to figure that out and figure out why dad never loved me, why nothing I ever did was good enough for dad. And it will influence every action they take for the rest of their lives. Jesus, remember I said Jesus cares more about injustice than any of us ever will. So he's speaking to the fathers here. Don't stir up anger in your children. He says in another passage we're going to look at later. Don't exacerbate them. Don't be unnecessarily crude with them. Don't be harsh with them. There are times when dad needs to bring and lay down the law with his kids. I understand that. But it better be with a mind towards discipline and reconciliation and in the humility that we have before Christ and not just simply out of anger. How they view us as fathers will impact how they view their father in heaven for the rest of their earthly lives. And dad's we know that because we live it. Because we're constantly wrestling with what it means to have a perfect father who loves us perfectly without, without any error. Because we have this baggage of having imperfect earthly fathers. Whether you had a, what we would call a good dad or a bad dad, you wrestle with that. And there's... there's 
Few things in life that will impact the way you view yourself and the way you view the world around you more than your relationship with your dad, for good or for bad. That's a horrible responsibility to put on us as fathers. I understand that. But the Bible calls us to lovingly bring up our children. You know, some things that, that I think about that come to mind as, as I look at this passage. A friend of mine, uh, we were raising teenage boys at the same time, and we'd often talk about, you know, that experience, what it's like to raise teenage boys. And, um, you know, we're, we're talking about how, you know, as teenage boys get to this age where they're looking for independence. They don't, they don't necessarily want to be under dad's leadership as much anymore, and they, they get irritated with dad trying to tell them every little thing that they could do better and, and all that. So he used this analogy that I thought was beautiful. He, talked to, he, he said it this way. He said, when, when you got to correct your teenage boy, he said, rope the calf and get out. And what he was talking about is if you've ever watched a rodeo or been to a rodeo, there's the calf roping event where a cowboy comes out, he chases down a calf, he lassos him, he jumps off his horse, he flips that thing on its back, he ties its feet up as quick as he can, and he goes like this, and he walks away. And the idea is to do it as quickly as you can and then get the heck out of there. And I thought that was a great analogy of how sometimes we need to approach our teenage sons who really don't want to hear anything we have to say. We, we tend, uh, we, some of us tend to sit down and want to have long conversations about life and about all of the things that we need them to understand and things that we need them to do differently. When really what we need to do is rope that sucker and get out of there and get out of the way and just let him figure it out from there. And let him grow up and be a man. Dads, rope the calf and get out. Don't exacerbate your children. Don't bore them with all, with all of your long speeches. Give them what they need and get out of their way. Let them grow up. Let them become men. Dads kid, who have kids of any age, apologize to your kids. How many of you growing up can remember your dad saying sorry to you? Raise your hand. Two, three. How many of you growing up think that there was at least some point in your childhood experience where your dad should have apologized to you? That's the rest of us, right? Dads, apologize to your kids. Listen, they don't, they don't think you're perfect, so you don't have to try to maintain that image in their presence. They need to know that you're imperfect because they're going to grow up and be imperfect and they need to know how to handle that. Be humble when you've messed up. Confess your weaknesses and mistakes. I don't know how many times I've said to my kids when I'm being grumpy, I'm sorry, I'm just in a bad mood. It's not anything you did. And there are many times I haven't done that that I should, that I should have, but, but I want them to know my miserable disposition is not their fault it's just me being miserable it's okay i think it's okay to say that i think it's necessary to say that i think it's good to be aware of and talk about the things you've done wrong in front of your children lead them but do it with gentleness there's such a thing as a firm gentleness you cannot let them be on the same level as you when it comes to decision making. Especially not when they're young. You have to lead them. You have to set the course for them. You have to tell them, this is where we're going. This is how we're going to get there. You're coming with me. You must lead them. You cannot be passive in raising children. But do it with a firm gentleness. And know your kids. Because each of them are different. Each of them have different personalities. When I look at my three kids, I, I, I parent each of them in very different ways. And they'll resist that and they'll say that's not fair. But they're wrong. It is fair. It's because I know that they're different. It's because I know that they need different things. And so I do different things for each of them. I speak to them differently. Because they're very different little human beings. They have different needs. You might see, you'll see this when you start to pay attention. Some kids, if you raise your voice with some kids, it absolutely crushes them. 
like irreparably crushes them. I don't know why some kids are that way, but it's not because they're soft and it's not because they're weak and it's not because they need to get used to it. It's the way God has made them. They don't receive that well. And then you have kids that you don't even have their attention until you've beat them to within an inch of their lives. <laughs> not literally, don't do that. You gotta know your kids. You got to know how they respond to your leadership. And so invest that time in getting to know. And then parent them accordingly. Find out what they like doing with you. It might not be the same thing your other kids like doing with you. And it probably won't be the same thing as you like doing with them. But find out what they like doing with you and do it. Okay, I know this is just, you know, I don't, I'm not pulling this from Scripture right now. But, but I want us, it, if we're going to ask our children to obey us, we have a responsibility, especially as fathers, to love and lead them well. I don't have a lot of experience as a mother to speak to you mothers, and, and it's convenient here for me that Paul focuses on the fathers. But as parents, these are the things that we need to do. Okay, so three relationships, one marriage, two family, three work. I said earlier the third one's not as obvious, and I've got a little bit of work to do to get to where we're on the same page here. Because it does not mention work. It talks about slavery, slaves and masters. And you may feel like your job is very similar to the relationship between slaves and masters, but it's not. What's mentioned here is very different. But if you'll give me a couple of minutes, I want to make the case that everything that is said here in verses 5 through 9 applies to and is, a meant, is meant to be applied by us to our relationship with work. Okay, so let's look at it. Slaves, obey your human masters with fear and trembling and the sincerity of your heart as you would Christ. Don't work only while being watched as people pleasers, but as slaves of Christ. Do God's will from your heart. Serve with a good attitude as to the Lord and not to people, knowing that whether, whatever good each one does, slave or free, he will receive this back from the Lord. I'm going to stop there. I'll stop with verse 8. I'll read 9 in a minute. Okay, so some things you need to know about slavery. This is a sensitive topic today. With everything, it's just sensitive, okay? You understand that. Slavery was very common as a part of the culture that Paul was writing to here. They lived within the Roman Empire, and within the Roman Empire, slavery was just an economic reality I'm, that does not justify slavery, that, that is not a defense of slavery, it is the mere assertion of a fact. It was part of their world, it was a part of their reality. Somewhere around half of the population of the Roman Empire were likely slaves. Some people suspected it was more than half. So there were actually more slaves than free people. Slaves in that context weren't necessarily just physical laborers. Many of them were highly educated, skilled, and trained. And the conditions for slaves varied largely dependent upon the master. And so absolutely, there were masters who did horrible things to, the, to their slaves, much like in our own um, history as a country. At the same time, there would have been many masters who were very good to their slaves and treated them very well. Many slaves became free by saving up the gifts that they were given from their masters and purchasing their freedom. Again, it was, it was not necessarily, not that there was no racism involved, but it wasn't an institution born out of racism. It was just an economic reality within the Roman Empire, which grew very quickly. Um, and as many people were conquered by Alexander the Great, and, and as this, this empire expanded under his leadership, People who were conquered and, be, and, and now were subject to his leadership, many of them became slaves. That's how they survived. That's how they got to live. Many people became slaves through debt or as punishment for their crimes. And so there were a lot of different reasons and a lot of different ways that people became slaves. And there were varied experiences among the slaves as to what that looked like. We still today have things very similar to this. You can go to different parts of our own country 
where people have what we might call like live-in nannies or something like that, which is merely an immigrant who came to this country and who lives indebted to the family that brought them here, sometimes legally, sometimes illegally. And they may treat them very well or they may mistreat them. But they're sort of an indentured servant. And many of them live very happily in that situation. Like I said, some of them perhaps are abused. It's not all that foreign of a concept to us. Okay, again, none of that is a defense of slavery. None of that is justification for any of the, the injustices were done. It's just, I want us to understand the facts. So, economically speaking, if you had people who worked under you, let's say you had some sort of business or you had a large plot of land that you farmed, your employees likely were slaves. It doesn't necessarily mean uh, that, you, that you were abusive towards them or any of the negative things. It just meant that's how you got employees. Maybe they were indebted to you. Maybe, maybe you did purchase them. That type, but that didn't mean they were necessarily your property or, or that you were racist or anything like that. That was just how the economy worked. With that in mind... It, we understand why Paul would bring this up because there were Christian slaves and there were Christian masters. There were non-Christian slaves and there were non-Christian masters. It was just a part of, of, of how work got done in their society. Therefore, and as I looked at this passage closely, I think that everything that he says here can easily and, and, and should appropriately be applied to how we view work. Okay? That's my argument. You can, you can push back... Um, and, and say that this has no relation whatsoever to, to how we work today. But I would disagree. I would say that this has every, every implication here is for us. So with that in mind, let's read it again. Slaves, obey your human masters with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as you would Christ. Don't work only while being watched as people pleasers, but as slaves of Christ. Do God's will from your heart. Serve with a good attitude as to the Lord and not to people. Knowing that whatever good each one does, slave or free, he will receive this back from the Lord. A couple of things I see here. Work like you're working for the Lord. Work like you're working for, no matter who your boss is or whether or not you have a boss, all of your work, we are to do as if we are doing it to the Lord and for the Lord. Not only while we're being watched as people pleasers, not only when we think it's going to be to our advantage somehow, but anytime we work, we work as slaves of Christ. We are all slaves. We are slaves of Christ. So we do God's will from our heart. Serve with a good attitude, it says in verse 7. As to the Lord and not to people. Some of you have miserable bosses. And you can't stand working for them. What Paul calls us to is to say, you know what, I'm not doing it for them. I'm doing it for the Lord. I'm doing it so that they will see Christ in me. I'm doing it because this work really is a gift from him. That, he's the, that, that this job is from him and it's for him and that I do my work for him. Knowing that whatever good each one does, slave or free, he will receive this back from the Lord. Paul's saying here, if you're mistreated, don't worry, the Lord will take care of that. If you're, if you're treated poorly, the Lord will take care of that. If you treat someone else poorly, the Lord will take care of that too. He has no favoritism. Slave or free, he will receive this back from the Lord. So that's how we're called to work, as if we were working to the Lord. Okay, so here's the protection. Again, Jesus cares about injustice far more than any of us do. So he speaks to the masters, verse 9. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Without threatening them because you know that both their master and yours is in heaven. And there is no favoritism with him. Masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Treat them like you would treat the Lord. And do all the things that, that he's calling the workers to do. And to the way he's calling them to obey, he calls the masters. And so if you are a boss, if you have people underneath you, treat them like you would the Lord. Do good to them. Look out for them. Care for them. Help them. 
Love them as you love Christ. This is what he calls us to. Both their master and yours is in heaven. Regardless of whether you're the boss or, or you're underneath the boss, we all have the same master. He's in heaven. He shows no favoritism. He will reward good with good. He will reward evil with evil. So my conclusion is this. Submit to one another as you submit to Christ. We're all called to submit first to Christ and then to those who he's put over us in life. Regardless of race, regardless of gender, regardless of social or economic status, we submit to Christ and then we submit to one another as we walk in love imitating Jesus who submitted himself and came and died to rescue us. Paul says something very similar in Colossians 3. I'm going to use this as a bit of a summary of everything we've talked about here. He says in Colossians 3, another letter he wrote, verses 17 through 25, And whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and don't be bitter toward them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not exacerbate your children so that they won't become discouraged. Slaves, obey your human masters in everything. Don't work only while being watched as people pleasers, but work wholeheartedly, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do it from your heart as something done for the Lord and not for people, knowing that you will receive the reward of an inheritance from the Lord. You serve the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for whatever wrong he has done. And there is no favoritism. Worship team, come and prepare to lead us in worship. How is Jesus calling you to respond? First and foremost, submit to him. He's the Lord of our lives. He is our master. He is the one who, he's in charge of all things. And all that we do, we do in submission to him. And then how is he calling us to submit to one another? Think about the relationships that you have in your life, whether it's marriage, your family, your role as parents, or your work relationships. How can you do these things pleasing to the Lord, serving him, not human beings? Let's pray together. Jesus, as we seek to understand what it means to imitate you, I pray that we would humbly submit ourselves first and foremost to you. God, that you having submitted yourself for us, coming to this earth as a child, but growing up to become a man who would suffer unspeakable suffering as you bore the payment and the penalty for our sin on the cross, submitting yourself to the men that you created, allowing them to break your body as a payment for our sins. Jesus, may we follow that example, lay down our lives for those around us. Help us to imitate you by walking in love and submitting to one another. And God, in the areas of our lives where this is a particular struggle, I pray for your grace. I pray for the help of your Holy Spirit to help us do what is difficult at times. God, protect us from misusing or abusing any of these things for our own personal gain. But may we reflect our Savior in laying down our lives for each other. In Jesus' name.